Today, some of our best segments from the global lane. Negativity, it seems like it's everywhere in our culture today on social media in Washington, D.C. and in Hollywood. But as we complete the fall harvest and Thanksgiving seasons and now move into Christmas time, it seems many of us forget God's blessings, not only in our lives, but also for our nation. Author, historian and radio host Michael Medved is with us now to discuss his latest book, God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. Michael, it's always good to have you here you, and, and to see you again. Uh, before we get into talking about your book, uh, your medheads and people that you talk to on the radio and elsewhere, podcasts, what are they telling you about their concerns about the culture today? Well, I think there are lots of concerns. I mean, one of we were just speaking about off the air is there has been a rise of anti-Semitism in America today. I think that the, the overwhelming concern that I understand is the need for what Isaiah talks about, which is come let us reason together. Americans aren't reasoning together, we're shouting at each other. And I think that people literally pray for a more constructive discourse. It's gotten to the point where people of Judeo-Christian faith seem to be having less of an influence on the society. Do you, do you see that? Yes. And why is unfortunately. that, Unfortunately, Well, partially because the younger generation seems to be so disillusioned. And I think that, that part of what they are reacting to is uh, the politicization of religion. In other words, and it's on the left as well as the right. It's on all sides. And I, I think that, that what we need more than before is not a religion that is fused by politics, but a politics that might be uh, fired by religion. And part of the religious uh, imperative for people who are Jews and people who are Christians is decent behavior, communication, respect for other people, and uh, a, a more constructive attitude, which was, by the way, typical of all of our great leaders. Our great leaders did not become great leaders through anger. They, they be, became great leaders through preaching basically hope and optimism. And leading. And leading. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I think about President Reagan, and it's one of the things that I mention in my book, is uh, he displayed such exemplary optimism yes. and confidence when he was shot. Shot in the chest, bullet came within a quarter of an inch of his heart. And humor, too. And, and humor. And by the way, and six weeks later, another great human being, Pope John Paul II, also had that wound that should have killed him. And both men took the lesson that, that their lives had been given back to them by God for the purpose of defeating the evil of communism and advancing the cause of world peace. Well, that, that is the theme of your book. I mean, I read this, God's Hand on America. Thank you. It, it, it's amazing because uh, from a historical perspective, you go through some events in American history to some of our leaders uh, that have really changed, changed the country if it had not been for God's hand. Now, one in particular that I think of uh, has to do with FDR and Winston Churchill right. and how they had some close calls. Now, with FDR, he ended up with polio, and that could be seen by some people as a negative. But you turn it around and say, no, that was a positive thing. God's hand was on him 
And he Tell us about that. that. Well, yeah. partially because he had a reputation of being sort of a lightweight, a playboy. One of the quotes about him, uh, Justice of the Supreme Court Oliver Wendell Holmes allegedly said that, uh, well, Roosevelt is a second-rate intellect, uh, but a first-rate temperament. And But the whole idea that he was a second-rate intellect, this changed. Um, the, the, the young man who was something of a playboy understood that life had been given back to him. And one of the things people forget about Franklin Roosevelt is that in 1933, literally two weeks before he was due to take the oath of office, bullets were fired at him, five of them, from 30 feet away, not yards, 30 feet away. He should have died. And it was a miraculous deliverance. I go into the details from this crazy guy who had been tracking him. And, uh, and if he had not been spared, John Nance Garner, who was an isolationist, who would not have played the same role in helping Britain survive Nazism, uh, would have been president. And in fact, do you remember that TV series that had Man in the High Tower? Yes. The yeah. High Castle, yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, very good the series. The book, which that is based on, uh, starts from the premise that Roosevelt wasn't spared from those bullets, which, by the way, came within months of Winston Churchill being run down by an automobile speeding along Fifth Avenue at 35 miles an hour. He was crossing the street, and this is in Christmas season of 1931, and he was run down. The, the wheels of the car stopped inches from his head. That's amazing. He was hospitalized for 10 days. Think of the turn of events if he Correct. had been killed there. If he and Roosevelt yes. had been killed yeah. within four, then the whole world, the question is, let's see, well, do we have Stalin dominating us or Hitler dominating our And then future? you move into, you talk about Martin Luther King and how he had close calls as a boy. And I, I think uh, one quote about that was one person said, uh, one of his followers in 1956 said, the Lord had his hand on Martin. He was saving him for us that no harm could come to him. Correct. And by the way, a year after she said that, he had a knife in his heart, which is something nobody knows about. There's a very serious assassination attempt in Harlem. He was speaking in Harlem. A black woman who was insane uh, came up and plunged this little miniature samurai sword into his heart. And he, they couldn't remove it because it would have killed him. And he, he always associated that with what he called his kitchen table conversion, which he wrote about a lot, which was where he actually heard the voice of God commanding him. And, and his whole life was prophetic. Uh, the night before he died, he gave this most remarkable prophetic speech. They may not get there with you. Well, the book is God's Hand on America, a wonderful book. Thank you. I, I would recommend it to anyone. Thank you. The cover of the book is a painting by Thomas Moran, which was the leading exhibit at the Philadelphia Centennial in 1876, which again renewed people's faith after the Civil War that we've had this horrible carnage, but, but God is still looking out for the United States of America. And he put his seal on this 14,000-foot-high mountain, the Mount of the Holy Cross, which then was made into a national monument. Now, what happened to the Mount of the Holy Cross? <laughs> there was an avalanche that removed the, 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 the signs of the cross, and a lot of people felt at the time that that was a sign from God that his blessing had been removed. I believe the blessing continues to this day if we merit it.
It sure does. And we're very thankful for that. Thankful for you. Thanks for being with us. Thank Michael. you so much, Good Gary. Thank you. God Great to you. see you. Protests and rioting in Portland, Oregon. Other major U.S. cities have also experienced demonstrations and violence. So what's the end game? Are these just some frustrated American young people demanding equality and justice, or is something bigger at play here? Well, our next guest contends the United States is in the throes of what he says is a move towards soft totalitarianism. Author Rod Dreyer is senior editor of The American Conservative, and his latest book is Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod, it's nice to have you with us. So let's begin with this idea of soft totalitarianism. First, what is it? Then explain why you think the United States is already moving in that direction. Well, we, there's a difference between soft totalitarianism and hard totalitarianism. The hard version is what we all think of as totalitarianism. It's George Orwell's 1984. It's the Soviet Union. It's the infliction of pain and terror on people to get them to conform. I don't think that's what we're facing. I don't think that's what's happening here. Rather, ours is going to be a more soft version where they use the infliction of economic pain and marginalization and shaming to force Christians out of the public square and to compel us to conform with left-wing ideology. Uh, and the fact that it's soft does not mean it is any less totalitarian. I know you quote Hannah uh, Arendt who after World War II published the book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Now, at that time, she said loneliness is an everyday experience, not just for the elderly. So how has social media made us particularly young people lonely? And how is that fueling this rise of soft totalitarianism? Mm. Yeah, I had an errant uh, in trying to understand how Germany gave itself over to Nazi totalitarianism and Russia to Bolshevik totalitarianism said that the sense of being lonely and socially alienated was the major precursor to totalitarianism. What social media has done is it has served as a sort of substitute for person-to-person -person contact. And it has made young people have extraordinary levels of depression, of, again, of alienation. And it has made them desperate for something to to solve their problem of alienation and their anxiety. I think that this is opening them up to the acceptance of a false idol that will be totalitarian, that will tell them, we can take care of all your problems, we can fix it if you will only say yes to us. That's what happened in Russia, and that's what happened in Germany, and that's what's coming here. Boy, that, that is scary now. I know when we think of totalitarianism and let's say the Russian Revolution, uh, which was really a communist one, but led to totalitarianism, we think of a violent overthrow, the murder of the czar and his family, of course, the murderous violence uh, ordered by Joseph Stalin. Now, we're seeing riots, violent protests in some American cities, but nothing like that. So how likely is it could become that, evolve into that type of violence here? Well... It could happen. In fact, some of the people I talked to for this book, uh, immigrants to the U.S. from communist countries, they say that they believe it will ultimately turn hard here because that's what the left will need to do. I think we have a long way to go before that. I think that rather we're going to see something develop in this country like the Chinese have today, the social credit system, where they monitor everything Chinese citizens do. They get all the data from their computers, from the Internet and so forth, and they assign them a rating. The, the more socially positive you are from a communist point of view, the higher your rating, the more your privileges. 
the lower your social credit rating is, like if you go to church and you'll get a lower rating, the more uh, the more imprisoned you are in your home and you can't send your kids to college and so on and so forth. That's the sort of thing that I believe it's coming here, that the left is going to be doing to us, and especially to Christians who are now seen as the chief obstacle to this world of progress and tolerance and anti-racism. And they already have the data. Most Americans don't realize this, but big corporations get tons and tons of data that we hand over to them ourselves through our use of computers, the Alexa, and smartphones. All it's going to take is a little bit more political will, and we're sunk. And, of course, we're seeing in this country uh, churches have been shut down. In Portland, mm -hmm. we saw at least uh, one Bible burned, churches attacked, vandalizer burned over the summer, mostly Catholic ones, I might add. Why are Christians and their churches being targeted? Because, again, we are seeing conservative Christians, not the progressive Christians who have already assimilated to the new order. Conservative Christians and their churches and institutions are seen as an obstacle to progress. If you stand against uh, LGBT rights, for example, if you stand against abortion rights, if you stand against critical race theory, you are a problem. Now, I should say that uh, all Christians ought to be against racism. We are. But critical race theory is something very different. It draws a line uh, between good and evil between the races and alienates the races and turns us against each other when we ought to be standing together. All these things are going to come down hard on Christian churches uh, who may not survive if they don't have deep confidence in their their mission, deep confidence in their Christian identity rooted in Scripture, and, and if they don't have the ability to suffer and to suffer well. This is the main lesson I got from talking to Christians in the Soviet, former Soviet Union and Soviet bloc who came through hard totalitarianism. They want American Christians to know, be ready to suffer. So many of the people I talked to, the dissidents, did not imagine that in their lifetime communism would fall. They resisted it and were willing to suffer for it because it was the right thing to do, and it was the right thing to do to be faithful to Jesus Christ. We have to have that same attitude, hope for the best, but we also have to remember ours is a religion of martyrdom. Those who, who suffered and even died for the faith, they received a crown of glory. That may well be our calling, and we need to accept it as believers. There's a lot of hope out there. I was standing in Berlin when the wall came down and never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. It happened. God did it. Well, the book Absolutely. is Live Not By Lies, A Manual for Christian Dissidents. Rod Dreher, thank you for sharing your thought-provoking insights today. God bless you. God bless you, too. Thank you. Remember when moderator Chris Wallace asked President Trump about critical race theory during the first presidential debate? Wallace wanted to know why the president ended racial sensitivity training for federal workers. We were paying people hundreds of thousands of dollars to teach very bad ideas and, frankly, very sick ideas. And, and really, they were teaching people to hate our country. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to allow that to happen. We have to go back to the core values of this country. They were teaching people that our country is a horrible place, it's a racist place, and they were teaching people to hate our country. And I'm oh, not going to allow that to happen. Here to set us straight on critical race theory is professor of psychology and sociology, Anne Hendershot. Ms. Hendershot is director of the Veritas Center for Ethics in Public Life at the Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. She's author of the just-released book, The Politics of Envy. 
Professor Hendershot, good to have you here with us today. So tell us about critical race theory. It goes way beyond racial sensitivity. It what does, are people teaching? Yeah, it has <laughs> very little to do with sensitivity, I'll tell you that much. What that is doing is encouraging, well, for one thing, white guilt. But another thing, it's encouraging the envy um, that I see permeating society right now. I, I see a, a huge increase in rhetoric surrounding envy, encouraging envy. And I think it's pretty evil. I mean, I think your listeners, Christians, know that it's a serious sin, that envy is one of the, the seven deadly sins. And I, to hear politicians kind of promoting that and critical race theorists also promoting it um, to engender division and hatred and resentment. When you hear a politician like Mayor de Blasio in New York City say, there's plenty of money in New York City, it's just in the wrong hands. He's implying that that's your money that they have and we need to take it back. It that's seems, envy. And it seems like it happens every election year, every election cycle. Now, critical race theory, the critics say it creates racial division, as you mentioned, perpetuates segregation, and the view that minorities are victims of a privileged major uh, majority. So what would Martin Luther King think about all this? After all, he gave his life fighting for integration and a color-neutral society. Right, and uh, content of our character. Yeah, those days are gone. Um, there is an, and I think that that's part of the reason they want to gin up this kind of hatred because it, they believe it will help them um, by confiscating more wealth and taking more from others. I mean, it's almost impossible for a Democrat to get elected today without promising to confiscate wealth from the rich. That's all they talk about. And critical race theory does also the same thing. But what politicians do and what critical race theorists do is encourage that kind of envy. They have more than you do, so they must have somehow taken it from you. Now, there's a, an ugly history of slavery, certainly, and we have to acknowledge that. But to say that there's systemic racism today is a mistake. So what needs to be done, actually, to promote unity here in America, rather than advancing views that divide us. There's so much that bind us together and so much that we can work on together instead of using a theory and teaching that theory, promulgating that theory to divide us is just a mistake. So, I mean, I think the shared values that we do have, I mean, everybody loves their families, loves their children, want the best for their children. That's what we have in common. And if we could focus on that instead of what divides us and how much more somebody has for another, and move away from that. I mean, right now we're in a really terrible place. I mean, that guillotine that was erected in front of the chair, uh, the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, that's a symbol for me. That's the French Revolution again. Um, I worry about that because this rhetoric is becoming ever more heated up. And I know the guillotine was just a model and everybody says, oh, don't make such a big deal of it. But I think we need to make a big deal of it because it shows very clearly the hatred that is being engendered by groups. I mean, there's a new magazine, Jacobin, that's been around for a couple of years, but that's from the French Revolution. You know, you kind of know all that. I mean, that's the French Revolution is not a model to aspire to. It's just not. And so to embrace that symbolism worries me. 
And, and he's not the only person that's a former disgruntled, envious and former employee of Amazon. The former CEO of Twitter just said that any CEO who doesn't embrace the Black Lives Matter or the social justice or critical race should be lined up and shot. And he said he would videotape it. He posted that on Twitter. He removed it, but Twitter didn't remove it. Kind of a double oh, yeah. standard by our uh, <laughs> social media companies. Okay, I'm sorry we're out of time. Professor Ann Hendershot, okay. author of the new book, The Politics of Envy. Thank you so much for setting us straight today. Thank you. Cuties and California rewriting the rules. Have we learned nothing from Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, and the hashtag MeToo movement? Unfortunately, now we need to add another one. Hashtag kids too. Some rich and powerful people are still pushing the exploitation and sexualization of our children. Remember several years ago when actor Corey Feldman warned us about sexual predators in Hollywood? I can tell you that the number one problem in Hollywood was and is and always will be pedophilia. Nobody talks about pedophilia. It's the big secret. And it's widespread? Oh, yeah. I was surrounded by them. So Netflix streaming cuties should come of no surprise. Folks, let's not be deceived. This is not cinematic art, only a film depicting reality. Cuties is the sexual exploitation of children for profit. When we turn our eyes away from God and his virtues, our vision is obscured. Cuties becomes cute. And then we easily accept new laws like the one signed recently by California Governor Gavin Newsom. It expands judicial discretion in statutory rape cases. So now in the Golden State, a 24-year-old man is unlikely to be placed on the sex offender registry if his male victim is 14 years old and a judge decides the sex was consensual. Yes, there is still hope for our culture. When these things happen, let's not throw up our hands and say, all is lost, it's too late. We are called to be light. We must speak out when we see wrongdoing and evil, and we must work to stop it. Our children and future depend on it. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Parler, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.